Um, okay, well, we are back uh, in our discussion of biblical theology, and uh, I just wanted to make it uh, very clear for us, uh, just try to re- remind us of basically the three-step um, process or outline that we have for biblical theology. Uh, we talked about uh, biblical theology defined uh, so we're going to do basically three Roman numerals. Number one, defining biblical theology. Number two, hermeneutics and biblical theology. And then number three, we're going to actually approach biblical theology. So we're actually going to dive into the various sections of scripture that deal specifically with and that are relevant to um, some of the biblical theology we're, we're going to do. We can't do a comprehensive cover-to-cover biblical theology of the Bible, lest we be here for the next 10 years Sunday school on the same subject. So I doubt you guys will be pleased with that. So we'll handle some of the, I think, some of the main stuff uh, dealing with biblical theology and uh, hopefully enough to just to get your guys's, um, you know, just to get us exposed to it, to get us conversant with it, just so that you can see how it is that biblical theologians approach the subject of biblical theology. I think we all know how theologians approach systematic theology. It's kind of a basic... Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Not trying to forget the moms out there, sorry. So, uh, this three-prong approach, and now we come to the second uh, Roman numeral, which is uh, biblical uh, biblical theology and hermeneutics. That's... That's what we're on today, and we'll probably spend, oh, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks on that, probably. I'm going to try to do it in two, but if we, if we can't, uh, then we will just take our time, not trying to really rush anything. But there's two, there's two things today for sure that we want to get to, and um, in terms of hermeneutics, I want to talk about one hermeneutical approach, which is known as the allegorical approach approach of interpretation or the allegorical method, right, uh, which is just a system of interpretation um, that uses allegory as its main method of interpretation. Um, the allegorical ap- approach is actually extremely ancient. Uh, it goes way back to the early apostolic fathers as early as the, the uh, the second century and third century, probably even the first century, really. Um, uh, and even, there's a sense in which it even precedes that, but we're talking strictly about biblical uh, allegory uh, in terms of Christian, the Christian church. Uh, really, two proponents that were uh, big on this was a gentleman by the name of Clement, Clement, and another one by the name of Origen, which how many of you have part of these guys, right? Clement and Origen, both of them. So with Clement, you're talking about 150 AD to about 225 uh, AD, and Origen, you have the dates here, 185, yeah, 185 to 254, that's kind of when they lived. So those are kind of the centuries that you're dealing with uh, with these men. What, they, um, what these guys uh, ended up uh, doing was that they thought that the Bible possessed a deeper meaning than what was on the actual words on the page. And so what the allegorical um, method tried to do is first, <clears throat> is they tried to discover what they called the physical sense. That was, uh, that was the word that they used. The physical sense, of what do you think they meant by the physical sense of Scripture? Anybody? 
How it relates to the natural world? How it relates to the natural world? No, that's a good guess because you see the word, I mean, physical, so you're thinking probably tangible, right? But it was there, it was just their way of speaking of the literal sense of scripture. That's the way that they, um, that they spoke of it and, um, and, and, but they weren't, they weren't, uh, happy with just, they weren't content with the literal sense of scripture. They wanted to go beyond that to a different sense of scripture, which was that they wanted uh, the spiritual sense, right? They wanted the spiritual sense of scripture, which this is where, this is where uh, allegory really goes wrong, is in seeking a spiritual sense beyond the text where the interpreter would come to the text almost with a presupposed notion of what it is that he wanted to find in the text, spiritually speaking, and then sought different um, uh, uh, different uh, metaphors or images or subjects or words that he thought he could build an entire allegory out of. Uh, for example, Origen is famous for building an allegory out of the days of creation. He taught that the whales, for example, in the creation story, the great sea monsters that got created, that those were actually analogous or they were allegorically speaking of our inflated thoughts of God and how God had to bring, bring our thoughts and rein them in and they were under his control. You know, this kind of fanciful type of, uh, of allegory is just, it's just incredible you know, how they got there. And it, and it, actually, um, it actually enjoyed quite a quite a bit of, uh, of, of prominence uh, in the church. The allegorical interpretation uh, lasted for a long time. I mean, it really, um, some would say it's still around today. Um, some people like to really hyper-spiritualize the text of Scripture and explain the literal sense away, uh, things like that. Um, but but uh, the, the whole purpose of it was to bring in uh, the moral sense. That was the whole purpose behind the spiritual sense, which to, was, was to bring in the moral sense, or what's known as the, watch this now, tropological sense. Now you know I had to look that word up, right? <laughs> the tropological sense is, is sort of a metaphorical use of language for the purpose of moral maxims. Uh, and that is what the allegorical uh, interpretation really sought uh, to do, and why am I bringing up uh, the allegorical method of interpretation? Of course, when you're thinking of these guys, you're thinking of a particular region of the world uh, back then, which was mainly the Alexandrian, right? Alexandria uh, was where the allegorical uh, Alexander, which basically you're talking about that northern region of Africa. Um, is where the allegorical interpretation was really f- uh, popular, really famous. Uh, that was compared to, anybody know? The Antiochian school of thought. Antioch, so I just put Antiochian. Uh, but the school of thought in terms of hermeneutics coming out of Antioch, which was closer to Jerusalem, um, Antiochian school of thought north of Jerusalem is, is where more of a literal sense of interpretation came from. So the Antiochian fathers were known to be more literalists, while the Alexandrian fathers were known to be more uh, metaphorical or more allegorical in their interpretation. Now, 
If you study church history, you know that this is not always the case. That's important to keep in mind because these two camps, yes, we can say that these schools of thought can be traced back to these geographical locations, but it's not always the case because we have some, and and, uh, a lot of King James only type people, they try to basically, um, they basically try to, to, to poison the well by saying, well, the manuscripts that came from the Alexandrian region of the world were corrupt because, look, they were involved in gross allegorizing and things like that and spiritualization of the text. There was a lot of heresy. Origin is from Alexandria. And, you know, who wants to be associated with Origin? Because he taught all sorts of, you know, very, very aberrant doctrines. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Uh, there's someone else that came out of Alexandria who's very, very important to every single person in this room. Do you know who that is? Athanasius. And who is Athanasius, Jonathan? The Bill- and why is he important? The Athanasian Creed. Which deals with what? The Trinity, the deity of Christ, the orthodoxy. Where does Athanasius come into focus in church history? The Nicene Creed. What is that? In the Nicene Creed, in opposition to Arianism. Right, so we're talking about the Council of Nicaea, which took place when? 325, that's right. And what was the Council of Nicaea about? Aries, the heresy of Aries, from Aries, or Arianism. You mean the agnostics and the atheists, they get it wrong when they say that at the Council of Nicaea, that's when they decided what books went into the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) How many of you guys have heard that? Okay. Oh man, I had a nickel for every time, right? That's right. The, the Council of Nicaea was not about deciding which books go into the canon of Scripture. Right? Somebody's watching way too much A&E or the History Channel or whatever. Right? The Council of Nicaea was a Christological council dealing with the nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, and there were two proponents there. It was, of course, Athanasius uh, and Arius. Um, this is a fascinating part. I tell you what, if, if you already, if you haven't already, buy Philip Chaff's eight volumes of church history. I know you guys are all just dying to have eight volumes of church history. But if you do, uh, be sure and read his volume uh, on the Council of Nicaea and what happened between Athanasius and Arius. This is important for one distinct reason. Because during the 4th century, Arianism became so prominent... Um, as historians have pointed out, that at one point in church history, there were more Arians than Athanasians, if you want to. Uh, let's put it this way. There were more Arians than Trinitarians at one point in the Christian church, according to some historians. Uh, in other words, had Arius won at the Council of Nicaea, um, probably the entire church would have, in a creedal fashion, would have adopted some form of Arian heresy. Uh, that's remarkable to me. And so literally, uh, Athanasius, um, that's why Athanasius uh, uttered those famous words about how he felt during the, the, the Nicene controversy. You remember what, it, what he said? A Latin phrase that described the way he felt about the controversy? He said, contramundum. He said it was him against the world. So that's how he felt. He felt it was as if it was him sta- standing against the whole world uh, on this heresy. And it basically all boiled down to one uh, Greek word. <laughs> right? Uh, 
does exegesis matter? <laughs> you better believe it. Does grammar matter? You better believe it. Uh, it came down to the utilization of, of, of one Greek word. It was either homoousius or homoousius, right? Jesus was either of a similar substance as the Father or he was of the same substance as the Father. So uh, Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that he is similar to the Father, but he is not as divine as the Father. Uh, a modern-day uh, expression of, of uh, uh, Arianism. Today, this is this is still relevant today. You know this whole controversy. So, just to point out that even though in Alexandria, yes, uh, allegorical methods did come out of there, but we did have some bright shining lights like Athanasius, who were absolutely critical for us. Like today, we all should in this room confess the Athanasian Creed. We should all adopt it, and we should all adhere to it and believe in it because it is uh, one of those historical um, documents that God gave the church that I think are profoundly biblical and profoundly um, uh, useful in order to safeguard orthodoxy. Uh, don't ever forget this. When you're talking about the church fathers, this is a principle that I learned from Ligon Duncan, which I thought was really good because I, I, you know, I have the apostolic uh, writing of the apostolic fathers and part of that volume, like you just kind of scratch your head all the stuff that's contained in it and what Lig Duncan pointed out, and rightly so, is that you can go into the church fathers and find all sorts of wacky stuff. Uh, a lot of allegorization, fanciful interpretations, and you're just like, wow, they believed in some crazy things back in the early church. But when it came to defending heresy, or against heresy, right? When it came to defending orthodoxy, the fathers were right on. They always defended the truth. Uh, of, of the gospel. So that's that's also very important to, to point out. One of the reasons why we're even talking about the allegorical interpretation is just to be, be clear that when we're talking about the allegorical interpretation, it is not at all the same as another aspect of biblical hermeneutics that is very important for us, especially in the study of biblical theology, which is typology. Right? Typology. What is typology? What is typology? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Somebody want to give us a formal definition of typology? <laughs> Different types or ways to express something. Different types of ways to express something. You're not entirely wrong. You have it up there by moral sense. Does it have typology? No. This this has to do this has to do with allegory. The allegorical interpretation. So we want to forget about the allegorical interpretation for now, right? Typology is something different. Something Anybody that else? Something else. Something that represents something else. Very good. Yeah, yeah. It's something is a type, right? Actually, comes from the Greek word tupos, right? And tupos uh, has a wide range of meaning, but uh, tupos literally means uh, you can either use it as a uh, as a standard, as a pattern, as an example. Um, uh, look, for example, turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 6, just to show you kind of the wide range of meaning of the word type. That You're going to find this in the Bible if you do a lexical study, but if you go to Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, this is a really classic passage, and this is very important actually, right? Uh, verse 17 says, Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... You became obedient 
from the heart to that, watch this now, type of teaching to which you were committed. Tupas. Uh, in my NASB, it is uh, form. Uh, does anybody else have a different translation? Yes, sir. Standard. You see the range there? I like the ESV even better there because it really shows off the range of the meaning. Anybody else have anything else? Standard, form. Um, I think some translations have pattern of, of, uh, of, of teaching or doctrine, right? Uh, but yet there's even another one. So it can stand for something like a standard, right? Tupas can mean something like standard. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, for example, you have a repeated use of the word tupas in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. And I think there's a little bit of overlap here, but there is a little bit of a variance of meaning still. Uh, look with me at uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. The Apostle Paul here making the case that Israel was a tupas of the, 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 the life of the church. But look at how the translation says it. Now these things happen as tupas for us. You see that? And my translation says these things happen as an example. You see? It was an example, so it's we go from standard, now you can translate it as example. I'm just, just trying to give you the lexical range of the word tupas, right? Um, but when we're talking about biblical typology, is this what we're referring to, these two meanings? Not necessarily, right? Biblical typology doesn't deal with setting a standard of something, right? It's not even so much giving us an example of something else, right? That's getting closer uh, to, the, to the meaning of it. So if you read a book, a manual on hermeneutics, for example, many of them will use 1 Corinthians 10 because if you jump down to verse 11, you see it again. Now, these things happen to them as an example that they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Wow, remarkable, remarkable passage of Scripture. So Israel's sinfulness in the wilderness was ultimately paradigmatic for um, the obedience of the church in the, in the present evil age, uh, which, which tells us a couple of things about the character and the nature of the present evil age, right? The present, present evil age will always be characterized as a wilderness-like existence. The church militant, in other words, as the reformers called it. In other words, that in this life, we are going to have to battle. It's, it's, we're going to have to war. We have adversaries. There's obstacles. There are, there are dangers on every side. Is that starting to kind of describe your Christian walk? Right? I mean, that's what it is, right? We have adversaries everywhere, dangers everywhere, pitfalls everywhere, sinful sin everywhere. So uh, there you kind of see it. So when we get to actual... Uh, typology being what you said about it represents something else, right? Uh, we could even say it foreshadows something else. Um, we have an explicit reference to that. Look at Romans, for example. Romans chapter 5 uh, as maybe an explicit uh, explicit passage of 
the word tupos in the way that biblical typology is talking about. And this is Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a tupos, watch this, of him who was to come. He is a type. And so there uh, we translate the word as type, uh, which means that Adam was, uh, we can even say, some sort of uh, uh, foreshadowing, right? Foreshadowing of Jesus. It is a predictive, it has a prophetic power to it. Uh, it is uh, foresignifying something that would come in the future. Uh, that is what typology is all about. Uh, any words? I just want to really just say there's no, there's no, there's no, um, Incorrect questions, there's no dumb questions, so if you have any questions at any point or any observations that you're making, please feel free uh, to raise those questions or those observations. Yes, sir? So maybe just, maybe you could just explain more fully, like, what does it mean that Adam was a type of Christ in the way that we're saying biblical typology? Yeah, yeah, that, that when we see the historical Adam, right? Here's Adam, right? When we see the historical Adam, this historical person, right? That what we're seeing is actually some sort of representation, right, of of a second Adam, right? In fact, Jesus is called what? The The last Adam. There you go. (laughs) The eschatological Adam. Look at that. He uses the word last, right? Eschatos. It is the last Adam to come. Uh, last because we don't need any more, right? Uh, last because, yes, he is second, but last because he's final, right? So, so this historical Adam uh, is a paradigm. It, it, he, is a, he is a foreshadowing of the future Adam, right? Uh, the future uh, person of Adam, or we can even say the prophetic Adam, right? prophetic of the second Adam. So that's what you're seeing in typology. You're seeing a historical, watch this, a historical person, event, um, institution, right? That has some kind of future fulfillment. Right? I'd probably jack that up. Who is a person that is a type besides Adam? How is Moses a type? The prophet of Israel? Okay, very good. Wow, that's right. Any scripture to go along with that? I don't know the references on the top. You're doing good. Yes, it is Deuteronomy. Anybody know? Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up a prophet like unto your, in the like, like Moses, right? From among your brethren. Right? My, I will put my words in his mouth. You will listen to him, it says. Right? Anybody else? David. David is a type. So I think when we think of persons, types come pretty easily. What about events? Are there any events in the Bible that are typological, that possess a prophetic future or foresignifying you know, uh, power? Yes, sir. Abraham with Isaac. 
Abraham with Isaac, so that situation, that event sort of foreshadows something to come, right? The offering of the Son of God, the promised Son. That's right, Robert? The Exodus. The Exodus, very good. The Exodus is an event that signifies a greater Exodus in the future. And there's a whole theology involved with that. Yes, ma'am? Uh, the flood and the ark. Very good. The flood with Noah is a prophetic type of what? Christ. The ark is Christ. Okay, you can you can focus on the ark as being uh, typological of finding our our safety or our refuge in Christ, right? right. Being saved from judgment. Mm-hmm. Right. But the flood is also typological of what? The wrath of God. It is it is a it is a type of a judgment that befalls the whole world exhaustively, right, in the future, which Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 3, that that is actually referring to the judgment that will come at the end of the age through fire. That's just remarkable, right? Yes, sir? Creation. Creation is also a type of what? Recreation. <laughs> That's right. So the, 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 the original creation is actually a type of the new creation. Absolutely, absolutely, without doubt. Uh, you know, if you read in Genesis, if you read in Genesis, uh, you find the presence of the four rivers in the Garden of Eden. Those rivers show up again in the new creation in the book of Revelation. In the, in the original creation, you have the presence of the sacramental tree of life because it has the power to impart life. Where do you find the tree of life again? Revelation. At the end where it says we will have the authority to eat freely from the tree of life. Right? I mean, you're starting to see how God and biblical theology is so important to grasp that what you're reading in the scripture is, to go back to Voss's definition, is an organic progress of supernatural revelation. It's all tethered together. Miriam, you had a question? Well, I wasn't sure if Maybe the vision of Jacob matter, mm-hmm. or That's right. you know the contrast between that and the Tower of Babel, you know where man was trying to reach up, and then in the dream God was reaching. To That's man. right. The ladder was set on the earth. Mm-hmm. That's right, which is ultimately applied to Jesus Christ. John chapter one, I think, is verse fifty-two, where Jesus applies it to Himself, mm-hmm. right, as uh, the Son of. That the latter was actually typological of the Son of Man, upon whom, he says, you will see the angels ascending and descending. Incredible. <coughs> Simply incredible. Good question? Oh, yeah, you said, um, you said at the end we will be able to eat from the tree of life. Yes, sir. Aren't you happy about that? Yeah, well, no, but I don't get, <laughs> why, why did Adam and Eve get in tr- trouble for doing that if we can at the end? They didn't get in trouble for eating of the tree of life. They got in trouble for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The tree of life, right, was uh, a tree that had the potential to perpetuate their life, right? Uh, But because they didn't 
um, obey God's command to eat freely of all the other trees, any tree in the garden they want. They can eat pears, they can eat plums, they can eat apples. Starts kind of calling into question, well, what was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then, right? <laughs> right? Who knows, you know? It's just amazing. People try to theorize, you know? It was a, it was a pomegranate, you know? I don't know, you know? I don't know. You know? Because it says it was pleasing to the eyes. It's just like, was a plum is not pleasing to the eyes? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if it exists today. Is that a fair question? Grapefruit. <laughs> you know it wasn't grapefruit, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I think it's just amazing how God, you know, uses um, the simple, and I'm going to use the word props, right? They're not props, they're real... The real things, right? But you know what I mean. He uses these simple creation props, something as simple as a tree and a fruit, right? And embedded in that imagery, that typology, is all of the plan of redemption. <laughs> it's just incredible. It all flows out of that. Everything flows out of that. I mean, you know that, you know, for example, because the situation, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but the situation between Adam and God is... <clears throat> I think also, you want to talk about typology, I think it's typological of the agreement that happens between God and another son of God later that I would say is the nation of Israel. That they too would be in some sort of covenant arrangement with God where God would say, do this and live, do this and die. And they too fail, just like Adam. So Hosea 6-7, like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. Perfect. So you're talking about institutions, right? Did we get to that part? No. no. <laughs> Gail's like, nope, he didn't do it. <laughs> Keeping an eye on him. <laughs> so, so events. You got the flood. You have, um, you know, the exodus, things like that. What about institutions? Wow, wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> okay, marriage. You know what's fascinating? Not to sidestep marriage for a second, but we know marriage, but this is what's fascinating about marriage, first of all, is how does the typology work? I'm going to run out of time, but I have to get to at least a little bit of this. It actually affects my sermon today. But how does the typology of marriage work? Turn with me to the marriage passage, Ephesians chapter 5, very quickly, right? To see something that I think for me is something that's genuinely fascinating, right? Um, um, After he gives the stipulations for what husbands ought to be like, what wives ought to be like, then he gives the principle going... Um, in verse, uh, we can, I guess, 31, right, quoting Genesis 2. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and shall jo- be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one sarks, one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is great, um, but I am speaking, I, and I think what he means by this mystery is great, meaning this mystery is profound. Right? Profound? Well, that's profound. <laughs> I did not know that. 
It says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What's the, what's the, 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 the issue, though, that I'm trying to point out? <clears throat> and I want you guys to be able to see this. So quickly, moving away from this, I want to draw sort of a diagram, okay? So you have you have the original uh, type, right? This is the original type, and we're, we're going into overtime now. <laughs> this is the original type, and the type is based on Genesis two. What is it? You see it in your Bibles there anywhere? I, I think it's two twenty four. Yes, two twenty four, and this is the historical type. So when Paul says that this is a great mystery, right? It has reference to Christ and the church. And then in the midst of that, he, he, he uses Genesis to show that what is going on in the anti-type, right? The anti-type is the fulfillment of the type. But here's the thing. In Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, we're seeing the fulfillment of the type, but there's something different here. What's different here is that in verse 31, this is a proof text for a dynamic that as far as, at least historically speaking, we don't have this revelation as of yet. So what I'm saying is that when he says Genesis 2.24 is the fulfillment, is in reference to, it speaks of, it ultimately refers to Christ and the church. What I'm saying is that that is actually saying that Genesis 2.24 is also based on the previous archetype. The archetype is what we could call, to use the language of, to use the language of uh, Hebrews, referring to the heavenly things, or we could even say the reality. So, what happens in Ephesians chapter 5 is a historical fulfillment of Genesis 2.24. However, it is also, watch the trajectory now, it is also the, rea- the heavenly reality coming down upon the earthly antitype. So what he's saying is that what is happening in marriage is actually mirroring a heavenly reality of which we have a historical type, a, 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 a physical type in the institution of marriage itself. But when we arrive to the fullness of what marriage actually is, what we're actually living out is a heavenly reality coming down upon us. <laughs> it's incredible. And the Bible does this all the time. All the time. The tabernacle. Just switch it out. In the book of Hebrews, we have an earthly tabernacle that is a historical right? Old Testament type, original type, the anti-type, which speaks of the fulfillment of the earthly tabernacle, is the 
the arrival of the presence of Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews is saying. But Hebrews is also saying that when Jesus Christ comes, what came? What came was the arrival of the heavenly reality of the heavenly tabernacle. <laughs> That's amazing. Because what we have at Jesus Christ, who is the tabernacle, the true one, as he, that's talking about his cross work, everything. What we have there is not the reality of an earthly prefiguring. Remember what Genesis, go to, I'm sorry, go to Hebrews chapter 1. Man, I'm going to steal my own sermon thunder. You guys are going to be bored today. Remember what, um, Hebrews calls this the original. That's right. It is the skia, the shadow. And you move from skia to a cone, which is literally image, form, or substance. So that is what the author of scripture is saying, that in the historical type, we have only a shadow. We have the actual essence or substance or image or form of the thing here. But what Hebrews makes very plain is that the fulfillment of this is actually reflecting not an earthly reality, folks, but a heavenly reality. And that's why Moses was warned to build it according to According to the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. That's right. So the pattern that Moses received on the mountain. Here's the mountain. Right? Is actually fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But this earthly, saniatic pattern comes from... The heavenly reality. And so what Jesus fulfills corresponds not so much to the earthly as to the earth to the heavenly coming down upon him. Isn't that incredible? That's right. The book of Hebrews is transferring us into another world. Uh, Commentary. If you read a a good commentary on the book of Hebrews, pick up... um, Pick up Peter O'Brien, his commentary on Hebrews. Um, pick up F.F. Bruce. Um, pick up any good technical commentary. Pick up Philip E. Hughes' commentary. Pick up uh, uh, Donald Guthrie's commentary on the book of Hebrews. Any of these. What they tell you is they tell you about um, the, the, the heaven and earth dualism that exists throughout the book of Hebrews. That the book of Hebrews is constantly bringing the heavenly reality to bear on the earthly fulfillment of the, of the historical type in the Old Testament. It's, it's just a perfect triangle. Don't ever forget this. What's the reference in Hebrews exactly? To chapter verse for the represented type. Well, there's a bunch of them, right? Um, there, there, there is all kinds. Uh, let me just give you one so that you can see this for certain. Um, Hebrews chapter nine, beginning of verse twenty-three, talking about the cleansing of the Old Testament shadows and types and sacrifices and people and institutions like the tabernacle. All of that. It says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies. 
That's the earthly things. Uh, of the things in the heavens, so there's the heavenly reality, to be cleansed with these, that is, with the blood of the old covenant. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And the sacrifices, uh, some would say, is that there the author is simply speaking summing up all Old Testament sacrifices really under one sacrifice, which is what Christ did. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands. You see that? The fulfillment of Christ is not to return back to the old shadow and fulfill it in the shadow. No, he says, but into heaven itself, (laughs) right? Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So that's, that's, that's just one example. I'm going to give you a couple more today in the sermon, so hopefully that will work out. Any questions, comments, statements? He drew the mountain of Jesus. Can you draw heaven real quick? <laughs> <laughs> it's unlawful, brother. <laughs> unlawful. I, did, I went, did you see that? I went up yeah, to do it, and I was just like, <laughs> reality, I don't know. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? You know, it's like idolatry. <laughs> any questions or anything i just say the importance that the that the Old Testament and original type are historically literal you know it brings to bear really everything else yeah as a foundation and you know hence why you know we don't like the allegorical sense in many aspects because it takes away that these things are yeah. more historically literal very good point. Yes, sir. It seems to me that um, the same uh, pitfalls you could run into with the allegorical method, you could also uh, encounter in the typological method. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways? Uh, maybe you'll cover this later. To it's good. Protect from you know, you know, typifying everything that we read uh, in the Old Testament. Very good. Very good. Um, I think there are some principles that that protect us from that. For example, um, the type has to be rooted in some actual person, historical person, historical event, or historical institution of some sort, right? And then you also want to have the authors of Scripture. Typically what happens is that you go from the type and you go through a series of fulfillments until you arrive to the actual anti-type. So, for example, you mentioned the Exodus, right, as a type. So you get Exodus language, and we're saying, well, that's typological. Well, really? <laughs> right? Why do we have a pattern for typology of Exodus, right? Well, we can just go right to the, Old, the New Testament and say, well, it's fulfilled there. But, but it also gives us kind of a pattern that what you see even in the Old Testament, so as you cross the testamental line, the testamental divide, the covenantal divide, whatever, you, you already have a pattern of Old Testament versus New Testament usage of typology. So you have, for example, the, the type of Exodus, and then you have Exodus language being used redemptively in Hosea 11. Then you have Exodus language being used redemptively in Jeremiah and Isaiah and their eschatology. They're, used, they're, called, they're going back to Exodus language to speak of a redemption, a restoration that is going to happen to the people of God. But that language does not reach the fullness. So we could even draw this line going up, right? We are ascending to the fullness of it as we arrive to the New Testament antitype. 
So what I'm saying is there has to be a pattern in the Old Testament that somebody picks up that type and does something with it. That's, that's a clear indication. Um, the other thing is that, like, I think there's a lot of questions like, do we read types into things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say is a type? So, for example, um, the life of Joseph. Is the life of Joseph a type of Christ? Most, uh, most theologians would say yes, even though there is no New Testament citation to what happened to Joseph, being betrayed by his brethren, right? being, uh, being sold into slavery, being condemned, by, uh, 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 being sent, exalted to the right hand of power, redeeming his brethren for himself, right? all of that, right? all of that imagery. Um, is there warrant? Yes, I think there is for some of that. Um, we just have to be careful. So there are things like that. Also, we're not assigning meaning to the actual words beyond the text. You know what I'm saying? So like, for example, you know, if you find a red thread in the book of Leviticus, that is not a type of the blood of Jesus simply because it is red. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? See, Jesus' blood is red. So red thread, red rose, that's the blood of Jesus. See what I'm saying? That is an arbitrary move, right, in, in, in the process of typology. So that would be false typology. So this is um, what we have to get into. Um, any other questions? Maybe one more question. Anybody? Good one? Somebody saving up a good one? I know someone's <laughs> saving. You're storing it up. No? Okay. Um, didn't get anywhere in my notes, I'll be quite honest with you. Uh, because what I also wanted to hit was another, let's just kind of tabula rasa, let's clean the slate, okay? And let's, uh, let's just talk about one last thing, just kind of whet your appetite, and then we'll come back, Lord willing, next week, and we'll handle one more category of hermeneutics, which is grammatical, right? Historical. Interpretation, the grammatical, historical method. Right? So we're going to look at the grammatical, historical method, and then what we're going to do is, because what we're saying is, okay, what is our hermeneutic that we interpret Scripture with? And what I want to make a case for is, surprise, surprise, the redemptive historical Interpretation. Yikes. Redemptive historical method of interpretation, which we have to define exhaustively, and we have to show things like typology belonging to the redemptive historical interpretation. We have to define things like uh, uh, having a Christocentric interpretation. In other words, uh, that all of Scripture has to be interpreted uh, as by Christ being the center of it all. Um, and I think that we can prove that from the Bible. So uh, th- this is what we'll do, Lord willing, next week, okay? Let's pray and then we'll go. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word once again, Lord, that it is so profound. Indeed, Lord, you've given us types and shadows and you've given us uh, different, um, uh, just 
prophecies and promises about your son Jesus. Now that we stand on this side of redemption, literally this side of the canon of scripture, we can see so perfectly all of the fulfillment of it all, um, uh, at least as much as we are able, Lord, we can see the grandeur of it. So Lord, continue to grow us in our understanding of these things. Lord, bless our worship service as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.